Welcome back to Case of the Sunday Scaries. I'm Elise. And I'm Annie. And I have been out of the country. I had my own almost true crime story. <laughs> Seriously. All oh. we have to say is uh, the movie Taken. Oh, well, that might be an <laughs> but exaggeration. Not. She's safe. <laughs> but it felt like it. Basically, guys, my tip for you is if you can, like, Velcro your passport to your body when you are traveling, do so. But my other takeaway is, thank God I had a picture of my passport and my, like, documentation page on my phone. I highly recommend you do that when you travel in case your passport somehow ends up in the hands of someone else and you can't get back to the United States. That picture will become very, very helpful. So we'll just leave it at that. But it was a journey and I was on vacation and enjoying time away from some of this dark research that we do. So Annie is going to update me quick before we start this episode on what the heck has been going on this week in true crime news. Well, and also happy April 1st. Happy April 1st. This is a bonus episode. We love a bonus episode. We do. Especially we're trying to get a couple extra episodes out because somebody, not me, that's not the surprise we have in store for you today. (laughs) (laughs) You get a bonus episode, but Annie is about to have a little wee child. Three days till your due date. Any day now. Oh, my gosh. It's oh, crazy. I'm ready. Are you? Nervous laughter. <laughs> <laughs> totally, Elise. <laughs> like, I am so ready to be responsible for someone else's life. Dot, dot, dot. <laughs> but before I dive into today's case, which is a mini about a serial killer, we have two big cases. We've been talking about them both a ton on the podcast, on our social media, They're kind of those cases that I know in 10 years we're going to look back and say, wow, we really were living during those because they're just hard to wrap our head around. The first is, of course, the Moscow, Idaho murders. As a refresh, four college students were brutally murdered. They did find a man named Brian Koberger. He is charged with the murders. Um, It was a super brutal murder. Motive still unknown. But this week, something really interesting happened. And I'm not going to lie. My true crime knowledge was not preparing me for these terms, so I'm going to try and break it down as best I can. What's new is that the state recently filed a request for a protective order to keep the investigation out of the public. They're basically saying that this investigation has potential Brady Giglio material. I had no idea what that was. Brady Giglio? Yes. For those who are unfamiliar, a Giglio or Brady list is a list compiled usually by a prosecutor's office, and it contains the names and details of law enforcement officers who have sustained incidents of untruthfulness, criminal convictions, candor issues, or some other type of issue that places their credibility into question. That's not good. No, it's not good. I pulled it directly off of the International Association of Chief of Police. So let me kind of break it down a little bit more. Brady material or the evidence that the prosecutor is required to disclose under this rule includes any information favorable to the accused, which may reduce a defendant's potential sentence, go against the credibility of an unfavorable witness, or otherwise allow a jury to infer against the defendant's guilt. Basically, it's information that might prove someone is innocent, but not in a way where they're truly innocent, more of like a... I understand what you're saying. So basically, potentially, what this we could infer from this is that someone who is working on the case 
may have not crossed their T's, dotted their I's, maybe not even done anything maliciously. But because this case was all over the news, maybe they just wanted to get information and didn't go through the right protocol to to acquire some of this evidence. Exactly. And that actually refers to the Giglio material. So there's two different Parts names, Brady and Giglio, that are always in tandem. Yeah. So really what is kind of going on is it's actually unclear. Um what the internal affairs inquiry involved. It's not really clear what officer is involved. There's not any information, but the fear is that this is going to cause a mistrial. So everyone is locking down. No one's speaking to the press. No one's talking about this. They're just basically saying something came out internally and one of the police officers did something that they shouldn't have. And that police officer is directly related to Brian Koberger, not in a friendship way, but it's related to this case. I'm so curious. I think we have to wait until the preliminary court hearing, which is on, not until June 26th. It feels so far away. But it's really interesting to me. And it was like, huh, just when you think this case can't get any crazier, this happens. Well, and I think it's easy to go to like worst case scenario, right? Of, oh my gosh, someone lied or someone did something. But it could be as simple as they didn't follow the right protocol on a search warrant. And the search warrant said just the living room and they went into the dining room. You know what I mean? It could be a technical thing. From my understanding of it, it doesn't necessarily mean that someone was malicious and like deceived, but maybe that it wasn't done with the right protocol so that that evidence couldn't be submitted and used against him. 100%. We're all human. We all make mistakes. But seeing the word mistrial and knowing how these four students were so brutally murdered it's like oh i hope that everything works out because that would just be worst case scenario well and let's just hope that if it is a piece of evidence let's just hope it's not a crucial piece of evidence it's just something that adds to the case not something that they're relying on to find this man guilty because it would be terrible if they can't enter that if the jury never hears about it or sees it the other one that's happening in real life that seems so hard to believe is, of course, the Murdoch murders, which Elise covered. She did a phenomenal job. If you haven't listened to those two episodes, I highly recommend going back and listening. But one person she talked about was Stephen Smith. He was a 19-year-old student who was found dead in the middle of the road back on July 8th, 2015. The recent breaking news to this case is that South Carolina authorities are now declaring his death a homicide, which is great news because it means that after almost eight years, Stephen and his family will finally, hopefully, get justice. Recently, on March 21st, SLED, which is the South Carolina Law Enforcement Division, noted that a previous medical examiner's report indicating Stephen had died from blunt force trauma to the head from a hit and run appear to be inaccurate. Shocker. If you've heard that episode, you're going, yeah, uh, I agree. But you might be wondering how exactly the Murdoch name is tied back to this, right? So it comes down to tips given. Supposedly during this investigation back in 2015, the Murdoch name was mentioned dozens of times, but never really looked into it. So whenever the Murdoch trial happened, Stephen's name kind of gets brought up. The Smith family actually had that GoFundMe that we posted about. They were trying to get his body exhumed and independently autopsied, which, good news, they hit their goal and then some. Um, so all this is kind of happening now. And I don't know what's going to happen. They might be adding Stephen's death to the Murdoch name, which I think would make sense. I'm going to say that, even though I don't want to get in trouble. Allegedly. Allegedly. I'm like, what's that word that I need to be saying? <laughs> Allegedly. But also, if you guys 
listened to that episode, there was a lot of rumors and speculation at the time that Buster and Stephen were in a romantic entanglement of some sort, a situationship, if you will. But also, whether Buster Murdoch is involved in this or not, it was just so painfully clear that this was not just a hit and run. None of the evidence made sense for that. So I am very glad that it is at least being investigated properly. We found out during that episode that after the deaths of Alex's son and wife that he was convicted of the murder for, it was two weeks after that that they reopened the case because they found something that prompted them to reopen Stephen's case while they were investigating the deaths of Maggie and Paul. So I think that in and of itself is very interesting. So hopefully Stephen Smith's family is going to get the answers that they deserve. But with both of these cases, I will keep you updated. Poor Annie is probably going to be annoyed by texts from me. You're on maternity leave, but that won't stop (laughs) me from sharing news. (laughs) The true crime world never stops, Elise. Unfortunately, right? I'm ready for it. I wish we had less to talk about. Yeah, truly. But we have our updates covered. Um, Follow us on Instagram at a case of the Sunday scaries. I will still be posting from my bed with my newborn, I promise. I'll keep everyone updated. But I do want to get into today's case. I want everyone to take a deep breath because it's about a cold-blooded killer, which I typically do not cover. I don't like serial killers, but I had to dive into this case after hearing about it. The case chills me to my bones. And the more that I research this man, the more I realize that there really is just pure evil in this world. The man that I'm covering today has absolutely no remorse for the 16 lives that he took. He was powerful and very dangerous. And I'm going to say something I never say, which is that I do think the world is a better place because he is no longer here. That's a bold statement. It's very bold, but I'm sticking by it. This man goes by a lot of different names, but I'm going to do what I always do and start way back at the very beginning. Tom was born one cold night on New Year's Eve in 1926 in an orphanage in London. Yes, I said in an orphanage because his mother actually gave birth at the door of the orphanage before dying shortly after bringing her baby boy into this world. Geez, that's sad. It is. She was 19 years old, and before she passed, she was able to give the baby a name. She named him after his father, Tom. Because she died so quickly... The orphanage staff knew very little of his mother's identity, but they did learn that she worked in an environment similar to that of a circus with lots of traveling. She never really stayed in one place for too long. And of course, that's going to make tracing this little baby boy back to any other family nearly impossible. So he was a true orphan. Well, and if you think of the time period, a transient lifestyle wouldn't be that uncommon. No, not in 1926. And in London, kind of a fun place to bop around, I think. Little Tom had the odds against him, but people in the orphanage grew to love him, and they raised him as one of their own. The boy was different, to say the least. Sometimes, I think when kids are in certain environments, they kind of create these magical worlds to live in, right? They immerse themselves in order to kind of forget about how rough they have it. Yeah, they disassociate. They do. That's exactly what Tom did. He loved the idea of escaping reality, and he even convinced the other children that he had these magical powers that he would use, which I think is adorable, thinking of like a little five-year-old saying like, I have my wand and I can do this. And it's sad looking back at how he was trying to distract himself, but I think he found a positive way to do it. Annie, I have to interrupt you and tell you a quick little story that literally you just- You had magical powers? I convinced people I did. I don't know. Oh, you're just like Tom. Little like- 
10-year-old me was maybe a bit manipulative, but I convinced people <laughs> on the playground that I knew how to fly. And I still to That's adorable. This day remember I would charge them for lessons. <laughs> oh my gosh. And they got scammed. They got so <laughs> scammed. But I had these little peers convinced that I knew how to fly. And you know the triple jump in like track or long jump? Oh yeah. And you have that like one hop, two hop, that process. That is what I was teaching them was those steps. And then I'd be like, oh, you're you're not doing it right. And that's why. And they'd be like, well, show me. And I that's had, why you're not taking flight. Yeah. But <laughs> I had these people convinced that the reason that after I did those steps that they didn't see me flying was because I was so fast. That is adorable. I just picture you like on the playground, totally giving these lessons. <laughs> just teaching like a track move basically which I don't I'm not even sure how I was aware of that but it just made me think of that of like how kids have these wild imaginations but I tell you what that's how I got my first gigapet was flying lessons <laughs> took a gigapet off somebody no way <laughs> that is amazing that poor person still is like back in the day I got scammed by Elise and they, I lost yeah, my gigapet. Yeah, she has a true crime <laughs> podcast. Let's talk about her criminal activity. Right. <laughs> so, Tom, I That's get amazing. you. I might have had a great childhood, but I had an overactive imagination. As did Tom. But one might think, oh, that made him be really well liked. But that's not the case because we're a true crime podcast. So when Tom was a preteen, things really started to go south and his evilness began to show. I found a story um, which is kind of disturbing. It's about a boy named Billy who had a pet rabbit. Oh, no. And him and Tom got into a fight. And Tom took it upon himself to not only kill the pet rabbit and hang it from the rafters for all to see, but also that was kind of the start of his animal torture and killing, which we know is an early sign of a serial killer. Can I just say I would like to take back my previous statement that I had anything in common with this man? <laughs> oh, it's about to get worse. <laughs> because on another occasion... He took two other orphans named Dennis and Amy into a sea cave. The orphanage was kind of on this field trip of sorts. And he performed an act so horrifying that the two orphans were traumatized into complete silence. To this day, it's not clear what happened, but that's just another red flag that Tom was showing at such a young age. Because at this point, he was only about 12 years old and he had already done these two really big things that I think grown men wouldn't even do. I mean, number one, killing a pet bunny and hanging it from the rafters. That makes me gulp. And number two, traumatizing two people into complete silence in a sea cave. Like what happened? Well, we, don't know. we know the precursors for serial killers, killing small animals or torturing small animals, arson. Generally, there's some sort of abuse or neglect and you know, he was kind of neglected right at birth. No fault of his mother. She mm -hmm. passed away. But right. right. It's looking good for Tom. It's not. Because of the danger that he was posing to other orphans and just to the orphanage in general, the owner of the orphanage actually called up an old friend. His name's Mr. D. And the orphanage owner asked Mr. D to come assess Tom and kind of help her out a little bit. Because, like I said, he's just he's just being really dangerous at this point. When you think of an orphanage, the age that this one had was newborn to 17-year-olds. So you don't want to be mixing an evil no. person like Tom with babies, with toddlers, that kind of thing. This old friend came by the orphanage and he immediately agreed that, yes, Tom needed to be taken away from the orphanage and to be put into some kind of facility for not really even his protection, but others' protection. At first, when Tom met Mr. D, he thought he was a doctor or psychiatrist of some sort coming to take him to an asylum. 
because of what the staff had seen. But Mr. D actually was kind of the opposite. He saw potential in Tom and he decided to kind of adopt him as his own and enroll him in a private school far away from the orphanage, far away from Tom's tough past. And I think he was really trying to give Tom a fresh start and a new beginning. Little did Mr. D know he was taking one of the most notorious serial killers to this day under his wing. Tom enrolled in the private school, and this school was extremely hard to get into. A lot of strings had to be pulled in order for him to be able to enroll. Mr. D actually worked at the school, which I'm sure helped. But as Tom enrolled in the school and kind of found his new you know, lifestyle, his wicked side really started to take a hold of him. When Tom was just 16 years old, he committed his first murders. Here's kind of what happened. He found out who his biological father was. Remember, he's named after him. He went to this little town called Little Hangleton, and he found out where his dad lived. He killed his dad and his paternal grandparents. Oh, wow. Not a lot talked about with that murder because it was back in, you know, the 19, I want to say like late 30s at sure. this point. But a maid was actually the one who found the three bodies. No one suspected Tom because no one really knew he existed. Instead, a neighbor was blamed for the murders because he had already been in prison once for attacking one of the murdered victims. So Tom got away with no consequences. And at that age, you're thinking, I just, got, I just killed three people and got away with it. What's to stop yeah, you? Yeah, you're definitely emboldened. No one really knows what the motive was for that, but I think we can kind of put two and two together. And Tom felt abandoned by his father. And over the years, he had just grown to really resent him after growing up in an orphanage and then kind of being shushed away to this private school. I think he just wanted revenge. After the murders, Tom returned back to the boarding school like nothing had happened. Like I said, there was no consequences for him. And at this boarding school, there was these fraternities of sorts. And Tom kind of had two personalities. One side was that he was really well liked. So he was quickly chosen by one of the more prestigious ones. His fellow classmates actually described him as poor but brilliant, parentless but so brave, and the teachers at the school even called him a model student. So we know what's really going on behind closed doors, these red flags, these potential signs of serial killer, but to the public, Tom just seems like a normal kid who had a really rough start. Well, and as we know, you can have that kind of split life, right? You can be very front-facing to the public as the deacon or, you know, the, we'll get to it someday in an episode, but the clown at the birthday parties. We all know oh. who I'm talking about yeah. there. But then you have this other life. Like we talked about it with the case I covered with Israel Keys. Like he had a woman in his shed and then went to go tuck his girlfriend's child away. Sleep tight. I'm going to go murder someone 20 feet away from you. And then we're going to wake up and go on a Disney cruise. I don't know how they do it because I really can't scary. even keep my personal life straight, much less two lives. <laughs> well, that's what makes them serial killers. And that's what makes them so just, I mean, terrifying Danger. because yeah. they can just flip a switch. Yeah, and dangerous. Because he was so well liked at school, he formed a group of, I'm going to call them followers because he kind of like led this pack of bad boys and they would do whatever it took to get Tom to like them. Tom loved this attention, but he often manipulated the friends into committing petty crimes and other misdeeds. But the group was sneaky, so no one was ever really able to trace back these incidents, which once again made him feel more powerful. And it actually caused all of these crimes to kind of grow in terms of danger and meanness. In his fifth year, Tom discovered these underground tunnels at the boarding school. Think this old boarding school on a hill, you know, in the countryside of London. Of course, there's going to be nooks and crannies. Sure. So he found these tunnels and he started to investigate them. And he found out 
he found out that wild animals actually use these tunnels to hunt and survive. And there was an incident that I tried to dig into, but like I said, this was back, you know, in the 1940s. And this incident involved a female student who came a little too close to one of these tunnel animals, and it actually ended up killing her. It wasn't necessarily a murder that Tom committed, but he was the one who let out this wild creature. So word kind of got around that, hey, Tom was in these tunnels, he let out this creature, and he killed this woman. People then at that point kind of started turning their eye to Tom and saying, okay, something's not right with you but we can't quite put our finger on it. Around the point of this death, Tom was ready to graduate, but he was not ready to leave the school. He had grown really fond of it. It became his home. And we know from the beginning of this case that Tom had this evilness about him, and that evilness and desire to be in control started to really take over. He actually applied to become a teacher at the school, knowing that the kids that were sent there were very young and they were impressionable. And he kind of had this idea of like, I can really create this little posse and kind of control them because they are so young and vulnerable. He must have been quite charismatic for having all these little followers. He was. Like, is he going to start a cult? That's what it sounds like. It's like the beginnings of not only it a does sound killer, like that. but a cult leader. Thankfully, he was never given that position at the school. Well, that's smart. Right, it is smart. Someone who had a hiring position was like, no, 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 Tom, you're not getting this position. So Tom graduated. He then moved to Britain and got a job at an artifact store, which is very niche. Like, what a fun kind of job to see all these artifacts come and go and all that kind of stuff. You get to, like, play Indiana Jones. Yes, but this is where his fourth confirmed murder happened. A woman came in with a very rare artifact, and Tom got oddly possessive of it. He never really knew his family. He did know their names, but he had this weird attachment to this artifact and immediately blamed the woman of stealing it from his family. How the hell did he feel this connection to it or feel like it was his to take? I have no idea. But he ended up giving this woman hot chocolate with poison in it, and it ended up killing her. After committing this murder... Tom disappeared and was seemingly untraceable for 10 full years. What happened during that 10 years is unknown. Some think that he enrolled in training and self-defense and that he really leaned into that evilness and desire to become a weapon of sorts. And that kind of little devil on his shoulder that had followed him since childhood kind of won and he was no longer a good person. I think he stopped being a good person when he killed that rabbit. This is just escalation. Right. You can't blame teenage hormones on that. No. I agree. When he finally did emerge, he went back to the boarding school that he had grown so attached to, and he ran into his old friend, Mr. D. Like I said, Mr. D was a teacher there. He once again asked if he could work at the school, and he wanted to teach a subject that was very close to his heart, a type of defense class. But luckily, Mr. D had a good head on his shoulders, and he was very adamant that Tom would never be invited to work at that school. There was one professor there who took a liking to Tom, and he had always kind of been on his side when it came to the petty crimes and pranks that he committed during his time at the school. I'm not really sure if this professor knew the full extent of what Tom was capable of, but the two got together, and this is where the story really takes a turn. This professor told Tom that there was someone who was threatening life as Tom knew it. It was a little boy and this little boy was named Harry Potter, and he was a wizard. And if you haven't caught on by now, this is a full-blown April Fool's joke. Y'all, I was talking about Lord Voldemort, he who should not be named Tom Riddle. I hope that at this point, you're probably turning your head like, what is going on? 
But I am curious how many people um, are Harry Potter fans. Elise has never watched Harry Potter. So as I'm going through it, I'm like, oh, this little girl, Myrtle, was the one who was murdered by the Chamber of Secrets. Tom Riddle is this person's name. He ended up killing his dad, the Muggle, um, because remember, the Muggle married the witch who had Tom. It's a Muggle. A Muggle is like a human. So you have your wizards and you have your Muggles. Harry Potter, that's who was born, who kind of saved. Actually, this is just the start of the story. But the farther I started to dig into it, I was like, people are going to realize that this is Lord Voldemort. So I'm stopping us right there. Happy April Fools. I hope that everyone enjoyed this little mini. Elise is bamboozled. I feel like I got preyed upon because I don't watch Harry Potter. <laughs> or read it. It's payback for you charging flying lessons, never teaching them how to actually fly. <laughs> okay, well, you got me on this because I was fully invested in going 16 murders. Like that puts him with like the most notorious serial killers of all time. <laughs> oh, and okay. all the animal, the, you know, the, the poor bunny, the sea caves, like obviously in that sea cave, he did something magical that made them all go into silence. But I couldn't say that. So this was a fun one to do. And I hope that everyone has a nice Saturday morning chuckle over it. You even said happy April 1st that I didn't catch on. I was like, okay, happy April 1st. I know. I was foreshadowing. <laughs> I'm still tired from my trip. That's the excuse I'm using. <laughs> oh, how do I even Got close em. that episode? Well, let us know if you fell for it like I did. Good job, Annie. And also now I know why you were so adamant on recording this today. <laughs> <laughs> like no one has to go out on april 1st or else no one's gonna understand but we are back tomorrow we are back tomorrow which is exciting two episodes in one week you know trigger warning we are going to be talking a lot about sexual assault we have a very incredible interview with the lead investigator for the sex crimes unit here in denver he's a man doing a lot of good work out there so i hope you guys tune in but i'm still kind of giggling that i fell for this crap but as always i don't even know how to end this Happy April Fools, guys. <laughs> Happy April Fools. <laughs>